Brooke and Andrew and I uh, had a chat uh, earlier today, and we thought that the best way we might do this is in fact just to have a conversation, because uh, in our conversation today raised a whole lot of issues that we thought were pertinent to uh, uh, both subjects, and, and that uh, Andrew's got his iPad there uh, with a quick ability to flick to a picture or a little story or a film uh, when he needs to. So uh, we thought we might do that too. Um, and, and maybe we should be even more anarchic and say, who wants to ask the question while we're talking about the great idea? Um, so uh, it might be useful, though, uh, Andrew, uh, if you maybe talk about future uh, fugitive structures so we can get that sort of out of the way, sure. in a sense, given that we really want to talk about the bigger subject. Uh, and then that's going to raise the issues that you want to talk about uh, with Australian House anyway, I suspect. Is that, is, would you like to start that way? That sounds fine. There is a... Uh, I, might, I might sit there for, for this little bit then. <laughs> so I can see it. <laughs> anyway, I promise I won't say Well, firstly, I should, I should say thank you to SCAF and thank for hosting tonight. And thank you uh, to James for participating in this and for Brooke for being up here from Melbourne. And thank you to Jean for the opportunity with Fugitive Structures. It's extremely, extremely exciting for me and I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun. I will show something, first of all, because I've said every talk I've given in the last three months, I've begun with this. Yes! So that, that's from the opening of uh, Australia House in Niigata a few months ago. And in a minute, I'll give a very concise summary of the, that project, I guess almost in a conventional architectural way, but I'll try to talk about it in, a, in an accessible, non-conventional architectural way. Um, but right now, I'll just, I will just quickly show uh, the Fugitive Structures project. I'm not sure if people are comfortable with plans, but this is <laughs> we're right now in this grey space, and we're dealing with a, a courtyard, and you can see the, the dotted shape at the end is the, the beautiful rose apple hedge. And we were given a limitation that the building needed to be 20 square metres maximum, which means that you can avoid having to get a council approval. So it's just one of those things, managing risk, get it done. It's not about challenging council. It's not about that. So. I thought the most pragmatic response to a, a 20 square metres is a 4 by 5 metre rectangle. Um, and I've, my initial response was to place that as a rectangular form, which is this, down against the hedge. So I think by having a, a sort of simple, almost anonymous black box, we have a, a kind of a, a sense of a, an absence of, of authorship and a, a, a kind of generic quality yet it's located against the hedge and it's shaped in response to that, so it has a, a site-specific quality. It's, it's 2.9 metres high, which is another, had to be less than three metres. So we start with the, actually I'm quite interested in, in geometry and in, in, in arcs. Um, and it's interesting, whatever your interests are, you see that in other things. 
that's been something that's been apparent working with Brooke, the things that he sees and saw in the Australia House building and how he responded. But so just various various things that I've seen. So San Michel in Venice, that, that kind of arcing, embracing shape when you arrive on the island. Or well, the Royal Crescent in Bath. I think it's just such a an arc is such a simple geometric concept, but I think really rich. So so that that box is then eroded, I guess, by two two arcs. Uh, one deeper arc on this side, or three arcs actually, a shallow one at the front, which is almost a, a very subtle, almost abstract sense of, of a veranda, which you can see you can see there. Uh, and then a third one on the side, which we just down here against the brick wall, which is a very small semicircular space with a a steel plate on the roof with perforations to give you a sense of the night sky. So it's located down against the hedge. The original idea was that the, the roof would be cut back to allow light to wash down the hedge. So a fairly simple. But the idea being that through framing we create an expectation of, of landscape and expanse. So somehow through framing the building transforms a, a finite, uh, when, I, when I gave the presentation I said it was a very ordinary element, but it's actually quite a beautiful thing in itself. But it transforms something finite into something vast, or an expectation of something vast. And originally I was going to have it located against the hedge, um, but we decided through conversation with Daniel Bavsky and other people on the, I guess on the jury, that we might pull it off the hedge to let light hit, hit it, because it's a living thing. So I'm quite interested in the way that, interested in the way that uh, planting of vegetation can become part of the built fabric, and not, not as a, a green wall. You know, you see these green walls around now, but I think the hedge is just the most wonderful basic device, because it's almost as though it's a plant which has been given geometry, which I think you see, you take a look out there later on tonight, you've got the, the kind of wild form of the hedge at the top, beyond the six metres where they can cut, can trim, but underneath that you've got, you know, geometry, a plane. If, if at any point I get I become esoteric, people just need to uh, give me a sign and I'll I'll pull it back. Uh, when you're in the when you come into the interior, you look you look back to the front and there's a steel plate screen again with these perforations um, to evoke a sense of the night sky. So it's a, it's a sort of deliberately quite a naive thing, but I th I think that when you look when you come into that space, it'll be quite dark, and when you look back, the daylight will. I think, I think the measure of the project, whether it's a success, will be whether in that moment you do get some sort of sense of the night sky or some sense of wonder. It's a simple perforated steel plate, evoking arcs, etc. I'll quickly show you this. The, the material, the material that we're looking to use is this traditional, well, it's a traditional Japanese technique, yakisugi or shusugi bone, uh, which is charred cedar. We're actually going to do it to try to do it with, with, with tazzy oak, so to try to use a local species. You don't use hardwoods to do this because they, they don't give you a very rich texture like that. So we're using a softwood, tazzy oak, and we're working with someone to supply the material. Um, what, it, what it does to, to Japanese cedar is that it extends its life and its resistance against rot and uh, mould and insects from seven years to about 70 years, 
is the idea as a treatment. So there's also a tradition of this in Australia where the early farmers would burn the char the bottom of their fence posts before putting them in the ground because it would make it naturally resistant to rot. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it does have a local history. Um, and I think it's, um, actually this is pretty amazing, just this flaming chimney. And he casually comes in at one point and turns it over and then throws it down on the ground. But um, I think in a country which has a country of... <laughs> she walks off. <laughs> so in a country of bushfire, I think, um, which is one of the, the parts of our, our identity. So that's the surface. So the, the idea of this will be that the, the, the flat surfaces on the outside, the top of it, and the two sides will be this quite rough texture. The, the, the arch will be quite smooth. Same technique, but we'll, we'll, you can then treat it and uh, work it so that you get a smooth charred surface. So it's almost as they've got this kind of rough, burnt block, and then sliced out of that, um, these fine arcs. Originally, I thought it would be the other way. I thought it would be nice to have a, a kind of the texture on the interior. But um, Bibi and, and Jean, uh, I, think, I think, brought the appropriate logic to it. So that's, that's one of the, I, don't, I mean that sincerely. <laughs> no, I think, that, well, I think that's the thing in working in a context with, with multiple people, that, it, that projects get refined. And, uh, and I think Jean has quite a strong idea uh, immediately. And you know it's been it's been a fun fun process. But to quickly talk about Australia House, just a very very brief summary. So so the location of the building is in um, uh, Niigata Prefecture. The small red dot, the big red dot, is Tokyo. So we're up to the north uh, west, slightly to the west. It's a, it's about two and a half hours on the, the the Shinkansen. A really delightful trip. And there's a novel written written by Yasunori Kawabata in. 1947 Snow Country, which was which was set in Niigata, about a businessman who would travel from uh, Tokyo to uh, Niigata, and the first line of that is the train came out of the long border tunnel, and there was the Snow Country. So I do have this very quick. What is that took on the train? snowfall in the world for the area closest to the equator. So the cold winds blow down from Siberia across the Japan Sea, pick up moisture, hit the Japanese mountains and dump it. So they can get 1.5 metres of snow in a night. Late March, they can be 5 metres of snow packed heavily on the ground. So it's quite an extreme, extreme location. Then in the summer, you know, it's 37 degrees. Uh, the best rice in Japan is grown in, in this region. And the locals are extremely proud of that because, against the odds, they managed to produce something exceptional. Just keep moving. So the building is this simple uh, triangular form, black. Again, a, quite an elusive structure, much like much like this one. Um, I mean, there's obviously a relationship between the two projects in terms of their thought, but it has a very steep roof form which rises to this point, and when you when you first arrive at the building, it presents a, because it's triangular, it presents a 45 degree angle. So normally your expectation of a, a rural utilitarian structure would be 
that you'd see a sort of solid corner. But you can arrive on the road and, and, and see it from an angle, but only see one side. So your expectation of a utilitarian structure is undermined by, by geometry. Yet when you come around at the front of the building, it's a much more solid, anchored, contained presence, almost with a, a kind of sense of, a, of being an institution. And then it's, you know, it becomes a part of the night sky. And the uh, fireflies that we find in the, the region, I should, just should say at this point, Brett, Brett Boardman, who's here tonight, which I'm really happy about, came along and spent a week with us in, in Ichigo and has, has taken the rest, um, some of the films and, and all the photographs you'll see. So that's been an amazing, amazing thing. Not to dwell on the plan too long, but I think the, the big thing to point out is that it, it is triangular, uh, which is a, 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 a sort of a strange geometry, but it actually offers a lot. So this is the main gallery space, but what it serves to do, for a very small gallery space, it's only 25 or 26 square metres, which is a tiny, tiny space. I mean, it's, it's like a corner of this room it actually creates a very long dimension. So that wall is actually 12 metres long, even though the floor area is very small. So you get a sense of a larger space. That long wall faces an embankment. So this land slopes up. And the idea was that, that again, that ordinary landscape of the embankment becomes transformed into being something exceptional, becomes the third wall of the gallery, and creates lots of opportunities for artistic response or whatever else. And it's a simple, simple volume which does reference the, the many utilitarian structures in, in, in the area. So these, um, I, didn't, I didn't set out to try to, to try to design something like a shed, but I think we've kind of discovered by looking at, driving around and looking at all these things that, and then what, what really happened was that I just followed the same logic that they followed. So locating close to the road, so there's not much snow to clear in front of your, uh, you know, where you, where you park your mini truck, which they have there. Um, and a steep roof to shed snow, etc. And, and then you tend to, when you're using, having a steep roof, you, you're working within that volume to have the smaller spaces that are part of the brief. To take you inside the building, it had this quite dark, abstract, elusive, black stained materiality on the exterior, then a very warm, almost domestic presence of the soft timbers on the interior. Down at the end there, you can see the Daiko Kulishira, which is the king post, which is a traditional element in the Japanese farmhouses. Um, which we introduced into this, and there's a, a small screen there which conceals the source of the light, so the light washes across that surface. But then when you're inside, you, these posts on the front have some sense of uh, a relationship with the trees. I, I, didn't, I didn't think about that, but there are these, all these relationships that a thing finds. And then you come upstairs, and you can just see the, the king post rising up, and you can see the the bunks on the right-hand side where, where artists stay and, and visitors stay. Then looking down to the long gallery. So quite a small building, but it, it contains a number, of, a number of three gallery spaces, the long gallery, the tall gallery, and the wide gallery, all contained in this structure. And the building serves to frame. So again, looking across the hill to just a grass hill, and with breeze, I mean, it's the, it's the same thing. This is then quite an interesting thing. Brett's film of this kind of opened my eyes to this idea of, of framing an ordinary thing which then became a kind of key idea here. So it's, it's interesting when you learn through photography. <coughs> and there's a, a peculiar hinged mirror panel, which Brooke was responsible for, which doubles the landscape, which I think actually takes us to Brooke. Okay, so the, the, the kind of interesting thing I'm going to say first is that when um, um, Ben Kitagawa contacted me about um, being the Australian representative for Eshkosamaya Triangle, it was quite exciting and um, I, you know, it's a kind of 
uh, project, and, and, and education trial is such a unique uh, um, trial that you really don't kind of understand it until you actually leave the site. And this is what he's always said to me, for me to come to the site, to come to the site. So I ended up doing three sites, and um, as Jean touched on before, and also and a little bit, it, it's very much about being in the region, about how the region in general is changing, and how you know, Kitagawa really wanted to you know, inject not only international and major international artists and perspectives into the region, but also local Japanese uh, perspective. So it's not just Japanese people coming along from outside the region and having that romantic experience when they go to the bush as people really have in Australia. Um, and so I was very aware of that. Um, and so, you know, the work, you know, started off as performance and video and it kind of ended up being something else and then really going to the region and talking to the elders there and talking to the people in the community and seeing that the schools were being closed down, turned into nursing homes, turned into artworks, etc. You get a real sense of uh, dramatically how much that region is changing and then we were talking about that today, how really it's a kind of a, a universal thing that's happening all over the world. Um, and the other thing about um, the little place where we were is that the people have a very strong bond to Australia because of the other Australian artists are there. So when we talk about Australia House, it's not like the Venice Pavilion, you know, the Sydney Australian Pavilion. It's 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 just because of the ways in which you know Australian artists went to that specific house. Um, and the kind of histories that the Australian government kind of supported as well through funding. Um, and also kind of trying to, you know, put, you know, together artists and, and you know, uh, um, people who really wanted to support that. And so when I did end up meeting the, um, the, the locals there, it was very much about how they wanted to, to be visible in not only to visitors from outside of Australia, but really to um, other regions are quite um, um, competitive. Like it's like Paddington being competitive with Surrey Hills. It really is like that, and but in a very kind of serious way. And also the way in which the, you know other Japanese people came to the region. And so there's a sort of a sense of ceremony. When I spoke to Gombei San, for example, I interviewed a couple of people and spent quite a lot of time with them. Um, and we all had very special experiences. And it was very much a sense of changing. So, you know, certain ceremonies and customs that he would like to continue, but he's too old now, um, uh, even to fishing or particular ways of fishing, etc. So um, then I, you know, kind of met Andrew as well. And it was interesting, that story, because when Andrew got the gig, he kind of was thinking, God, I'd really like to work with Brooke Andrew, that'd be really great. And then he kind of landed in Tokyo and they said, well, guess what? Brooke Andrew's the artist. So it was kind of nice kind of energy that was happening there. And so when we met, we started talking about hidden panels and my own personal interest in, 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 in hidden histories and memories and trauma and amnesia and activation of immersive spaces and how we're kind of complicit within that, yet we forget about that, yet we're remembered by that. It's a kind of a, for me, it's a very tight understanding. And, and, and when I went there, you know, this thing came up again. And then when I spoke with Andrew, you know, he's interested in hidden panels that he may talk about. Um, 
And then when I saw the, the kind of his, um, there's a hidden panel. This is the John Stone Museum. That really inspired it's me. The John Stone Museum in London. So we we talked about that project in the way that John John Stone had a collection of Tintoretto paintings, which was getting too large for the walls of his gallery space. So he installed these second system of panels that hinge in the middle of every wall to effectively double his wall space, display more work. And to this day, every 45 minutes, the gallery staff flip the panels around. <laughs> so you can do that with. Um, the work in Australia for <laughs> 45 minutes open and close it. So the whole idea was to have this kind of almost ceremonial or kind of space that would reveal itself and community or other people could, you know, activate it. Um, and there's some great images that, um, that Brett took and um, and then also there were um, yeah, we can play this um, and also there's text in, in um, Japanese where we interviewed many people, local people, and I asked them questions, and then from those questions um, I created this text. The whole idea was to kind of have the self reflected in, in the work, and also the neon is backwards, so you really need to look at yourself and read the text in the mirror, so you're implicated within that space. So when people come to the site, they're very much firmly in that environment, they're with the people and um, the landscape. And also because there's other glass areas everywhere, kind of like it's this kind of quadruple of kind of reflections and hall of mirrors and text everywhere and light everywhere. And the pattern is a traditional pattern from my mum's area, from Wiradjuri country in Western New South Wales, which you may have seen on um, dendroglyphs, which are tree carvings, etc. But I've kind of um, um, made a hard edge. It's a pattern I've used in the cell, for example, um, for here. Um, uh, and the reason why I've got that pattern there is because it activates a ceremonial or, or important space. Oh, there you go. It's very big. And she breathes. So Thiriyanaran, which is mountain home. Um, kind of mountain home was very special because um, Australia house and then mountain home and you don't often think of people in the bush living in their little huts or something in their mountain home you know but it's you know it's such a kind of thing it's like a respite as well I mean you can romanticize that but it's also very special like spending time in Gombe Sun there um, the interesting thing about the text is I had lots and lots and lots of text I'll be very quick about this I think it's important to say it but within the text, you know, even some of the locals were saying, no, we don't want people coming here, you know, because they leave their rubbish here and, you know, so there's a whole other story of reality as well. And so I was thinking, okay, how can I work all of this in here, you know, without the politics and without the kind of, but it's also a very real community. It's gone by some. And he lives next door to Australia House. And he, very famous karaoke singer, and he's been on TV many times. Um, and we were very privileged. I talked him into doing a karaoke song. Um, called, the next song was called Mountain Flower. And so it was, a, it was a true way of kind of, you know, activating this space and uh, kind, of kind of initiating that site. If we could just go back to the text, I might just read it out now. So see my snow, see my summer crop, see my jade river, see my mountain ancestors, see my children, see my struggle. 
see me with clarity, drink tea with me. I mean, these, I mean, if you, you kind of go to the region or you know about the region, see my children, well, you know, many of the children have left. Um, see my struggle. I mean, a lot of culture has changed. Um, I mean, of course, you can translate that in many different ways. See my ancestors, you know, Gombe-san talked about, you know, the spirits and the ancestors in the mountains, etc. Um, my snow and my, son, my, my snow. So snow time is really hard there. It's really tough. Um, and summer crop. Um, the drink tea with me was really important because, you know, a couple of the people I interviewed said, look, they come and they just go. You know, they don't even stay and talk to us. So it was really important to kind of say, look, if you're going to come here, have a cup of tea. You know, hang out with the locals, have a chat. So really that's where that came from. And um, so the essence of, that, of their conversations and their interests were in that. And of course, you know, the, the, you know, the powerful men and, and of the elders kind of, you know, made all of that decision about the final poem. So I created about 20, 25 different poems and then they selected which one that they wanted to have. Mm. And this is Narayana San, the community leader. Yeah. On the night before the opening, the, the, the community filed into the, about 15 people from the local community came into the gallery space to have a meeting. There were no lights on, only the neon. And someone felt nothing, no issue with sitting down in front of the neon and, and having, a, having a meeting. It was a really beautiful kind of moment that I think indicated the project was, was working quite well. Mm. They, they kind of felt ownership of it straight away. Well, you know, it was, I mean, of course, there's been all of this, you know, kind of, you know, um, you know I don't want to say community consultation because, you know, it's, it's just kind of like this really weird word, but it was, it was a... Um, it's almost like they commissioned something, you know, the, the community and, um, and, the, and, and, and also the wonderful thing about, the, the, about Australia House is that it um, is also a safe house for um, earthquakes and um, I thought that was really, you know, fantastic. Um. So we, we talked today about, about this interesting uh, symbiosis between not only... Uh, Andrew, but but the idea that uh, that this work uh, of, of both both Brook and Andrews was specifically and utterly local to its place, and uh, and how how they as Australians uh, engaged with this extraordinarily complex notion of place. Because place doesn't come through um, through a building or through an artwork, but in fact those things become the settings setting for place to occur. And, and so we had a, a, it was quite an interesting conversation really about the typical thing that one talks about when, when you see Australians or, other, or people from other, other cultures plopping down something in another culture. And I think it's become evident just, just since, uh, since these talks and so on how, how uh, Andrew's work is clearly uh, how he has picked up those things from Jack experience and, and they're now influencing this work out here. But I, I think it'd be good to, to talk about um, uh, your work, Brooke, in, in respect of what does it mean to explore memory of loss and trauma, uh, given that we actually live in a culture that is actually becoming less and less interested in those things. Uh, so we, we constantly uh, bombarded with the idea of global and in fact code for that is really it's the global economy and it sort of happens in the stratosphere of most of us. And meanwhile, 
these communities have been eroded and corroded by the very global economy that's, that everyone applauds. So uh, there was an interesting intersection of those things where, where this, these two works, uh, like this work out here, are specifically about, about the tiny little place that makes culture uh, have longevity and pulls its, its spirit from, from, from tradition. And of course, your work and, and your tradition uh, in Australia is all being lost through through those things as well. So, uh, what what is it that you think uh, enabled you, both of you, to engage at such a clearly uh, a, um, uh, a kind of dovetailed level into those traditions, which are clearly evident in both of, in both of your work? I think that's an interesting point to talk about. Mm. The process wasn't uh, easy. It was actually quite a difficult process. It kind of looks so neat and clean now, but um, I think that you know the kind of different processes that we went through, or well, I went through with the artwork were quite tough. I think Fram was very sensitive to you know what it meant to, in, in some way, not only memorialise but also bring life to a place that is thankful to change. And I think that's always really difficult because it's like what people talk about Aboriginal culture. Oh, you've left, you've lost your language, you've lost this, you've lost that. I mean, change is constantly occurring regardless if it's through colonisation and or not. And because um, people fall in love or, you know, they decide not to do that anymore. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that are kind of social and political that people either agree or don't agree with. Um, but I think that... Um, one thing that was quite evident um, with this project is that, is that it was very much driven by a sense of um, renewal and a sense of kind of accepting change and maybe wanting to have something that signified that and that the community were really proud of. So when I talked about, you know, the competition about, oh, blah, blah, down there, they've got the Christian Boltanski work, which is a knockout, by the way. But, you know, now they're coming to the Australian work. So it's, it's interesting how when we talk about global culture and stuff, I think that, you know, apart from being... Um, arguably seen as a victim of society, I think that it's a way in which to empower yourself through these connections as well. And how specifically have you, have you dealt with the loss in that place? For example, mm. we talked about how all the young people are uh, mm. there's, there's no young people to carry on the, even the, the residential tradition in that place. Mm. There are empty, yeah. empty buildings which resonate in Andrew's work. Uh, uh, so how, talk about how how you have injected that localization into that mm. particular piece. Sure. You could argue that the devices that you've used there are universal. Uh, I don't know what you mean. Well, the, the neon reflecting and that it's reversed. I they're, suppose they're, so. They're, things that yeah. are, they're generic things that we're used to, but yeah. you've seen them in a different way. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they're generic. And, I'm, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in neon because it's pretty. And um, it's glass, and I think that you know, there's something about light and glass and contained and reflection. I think it's very powerful because it's why the reason why we get up and look at ourselves in the mirror every morning. You know, we're very kind of impressed by the human image um, and the ego, and I, I, and I'm kind of interested in the way in which that capitalism really informs you know this kind of love of humanity, but that we have this incredible you know inhumanity as well. Um, and so my travels around the world, I always visit sites of significance, like the you know the kind of killing fields in you know um, in, 
Cambodia and of course Auschwitz and Birkenau, et cetera, et cetera. I'm always kind of confounded why we don't have a memorial to Aboriginal <coughs> Australia. It's kind of nuts. But, you know, going to this place, it, you know, I, I felt, you know, Gombe-san was one of the main people there and I felt this real affiliation with him because he really felt for things that were changing, but he also really embraced change, you know? So I think there wasn't necessarily a cut and dry answer. And so um, there was a bit of the process where um, when we kind of talked about this wall that came out and I put this pattern on it, and I've used this pattern before when I was in Lithuania, I made a site-specific work there where I talked to the young people and how their ideas of homogeneity in Lithuania, being a former USSR country, etc. you know, the older people loved homogeneity. When, an, you know, an Asian person or someone who looked different walked down the street, they were like, oh, my God, you know? And then the kind of racism that kind of existed in that society, the younger people were desperate for change, you know? And so I made this work which had a very similar pattern. But it had, in Lithuanian, um, you've always wanted to be black, white friend. And so, you know, it, it's this kind of tension about culture. And I think that you know, putting this poem on this pattern, which is the pattern is about ceremony and, and, and acknowledgement of difference, but also the importance of ceremony, um, kind of worked because, you know, the words are really there were words. I just kind of borrowed those words and condensed them. And then the mirror amplified the landscape. And that's something that, you know, Andrew and I talked about quite a lot in regards to that. So on that matter, that, because this work out here is about landscape as well, all the, you know, Framed landscape. So, did that? Did you have that dialogue about landscape? Because what what happens when the mirror opens in the, in the building? Of course, it transforms the, the the space of the building from internal to external. Yeah, to me, what, what was quite an interesting. I, I found the collaboration with the book quite effortless. Um, and really, my experience in the whole project was that it was quite straightforward. But that was, I think, the course. There were some amazing collaborating architects in Japan: uh, Suhei Mamura and Satari Yamamoto. But when I first met with Brooke, we, I showed him this, this was a competition rendering, and I had, had made this suggestion, which was the idea of an, an artist or a sort of curatorial opportunity where someone may install works inside and outside, so that embankment becomes the third world of the gallery or an opportunity to install something. And here I thought, two related works. But Brooke actually saw in this image a reflection. He thought that was a, a glass wall and this was just a reflection of the two elements. <coughs> so suddenly, Suddenly reflection, I, I, think, I think Brooke, Brooke sees things through a lens and, and then maybe looks for those things. That's what he saw and that became the element of the discussion, as well as these hinged panels, these types of things. Um, I th how, how did that difference you thinking about the space and the shape of the room? Well, it was, it was defined at that point. It was, um, it was already, uh, uh, it was there, but there, there was a major change to the the form of the building during the process, which I think is worth talking about, because it, it did, at a pragmatic level, engage the project with, with the locals. So when I first went over there, I met um, with the local community and talked about the building. And the, the thing that, the message that was coming through was that that building won't work with snow as it was, as the original scheme was. Uh, so they really gave me a warning. That was, the, that, was their, that was their main concern. It wasn't of a symbolic nature or anything like that. It was just, you know, there's so much snow here. You're from Australia. You've never designed a building in the snow. You don't know what you're talking about. Basically. So, 
This is probably what you're talking about. <laughs> but I, and, and, I, and, I, and I don't... So I had to quite quickly change the plan of the building to work better with the snow. Which we changed it in one day and set off new drawings. Because um, everything had to happen extremely quickly. Because it was 11 months from the launch of the competition to the completion of construction, which is, which is just insane. Um, so I, 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 I'm totally happy to go with anything like that because I think it actually adds authenticity to the project and, and engages with others. It becomes something that's not about me, which is it's really a big thing I'm, I'm looking for. So the original... So I, I think the interesting thing is that how the work, the work unfolds as it were, uh, open triangle. Mm. So the question is really whether the, whether the idea of the building or the, the work influenced each other, or you know how does that how does that actually work? Because the reflection only works because it's reflecting itself, and once you get past the right angle, it's not going to work. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think that was an amazing, to me, an amazing demonstration of a, a different way of thinking from from Brooke, um, and a different type of conceptual thought um, at an exceptional level. So, so did, you, did your plan, was your plan influenced by, by that idea from... The, the thing that really emerged was that the, the big panel, so there's a 500-kilogram panel, hinged panel, which we pushed to become a permanent work. So it was this idea of why would you create this beautiful thing and then, and then take it away, which obviously raises all sorts of issues about a gallery space and its flexibility for future exhibitions and all that sort of stuff. You couldn't, you couldn't do it everywhere. Um, but we thought that here, by having it entirely clad with the same cedar, so it is fully concealed, it does offer a neutral gallery space uh, at the same time as holding a work. So I've, I've talked to Fram, Kitagawa and the other uh, festival staff about the idea that, uh, I don't know whether this will happen, but I, I hope it will, where at, at each Triennale, the new, the artist selected will maybe do some ephemeral works, but also embed a new permanent work in the building. So Brooke's got the uh, first crack at it with the, with the big one, but I, I quite like the idea that there's a, there's a with those big glass doors, there's a, a, a space there for a curtain to go into, a blackout curtain. So we can do light locking and all that sort of stuff. I think that, I think what you're asking is, is really interesting in regards to how did it affect the way in which that Andrew kind of does the building, because you know, then we started having really kind of important, but maybe um, well, very practical conversations about, okay, this is a beautiful building and it's got an artwork and it, how do we turn it into an exhibition space? And that's when we had conversations about lighting, what you hang on the wall, what you don't hang on the wall, you know, kind of, you know, kind of the general kind of like, you know, exhibition space as well, so to speak, and then black curtains. So I think that, you know, even just kind of opening that space up to allow it to kind of like be a Christmas tree or something, you know, where you can hang things on it or change things or, you know, all of this kind of aspect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's been really interesting, and um, uh, you know, and then uh, you had, we had Andy um, Rewald, who was a, a, another artist who was there in residence as well, who's a performance artist who works with food and, and performance, and and you know, one of the his kind of things that we spoke about was like, well, it's such a beautiful building, and also Yolanda Blair, where do we hang things if we want to hang things? And so there was that conversation, but there really is no difference. If you have a white wall, it's always re you know returned to the white wall, and then Andy, you know, ended up using you know kind of uh, you know accessing um, you know local people 
people and having really great relationships with them and, you know, going on, you know, local food foraging and kind of making these incredible foods. Um, so, so then the building became a site for not only performance but, you know, entertainment and kind of forming relationships. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about that is how the local community love Australia, like, you know, when you're driving to um, Yerada, there's this sign, it's got a kangaroo and an emu, and it's really welcoming, and people love it, and people come from Tokomachi City, even go, you're the Australians, and so there's this really genuine um, kind of thing, which, which relationship that... Um, is interesting because I think what you know, you're, your point about you know block plonking something in. I think that doesn't always work, and I think that you know maybe you have to you know there is a danger of it not working. You know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. So the pictures you've shown, and I know because you've talked about that it's a community of old people. Mm. Well, how do you think the younger people? There are some younger people react to that work because even the narrative mm. has a sense of old timeliness. Drop by and have a cup of tea or whatever. Mm. Certain, you know, well, maybe the, the tea cool ceremony. Yeah, the tea ceremonies are still very much mm. happening, and people love to but do is the it, tea. Is that tradition in a young, carrying through to the younger generation? I don't know. I'm not an expert in the area, no, but it's an important question because the work you can yeah. say the work may well be referenced to people of a certain generation, and therefore is the, is the potency of the work yeah. um, open? Is it, is it accessible to Yeah, other, I think that's a very fair question, because I think that, if anything, it talks about the absence of children, like yes, Gombe San exactly. talks about how you know his family would come for a special event, but oh, we went there, oh no, they're not coming today. And so, and of course, people get taken away to hospital. So I think it's his mother, even. I mean, he forgot my son's what, 80, I think, 77, and his mother was in a nursing home. So then he had to go and visit her. And so there's this interesting sense. I mean, I wasn't trying to heal everything and deal with everything but I mean I think that's something that where the mirror becomes playful mm. but I'm not pretending to kind of you know also fix that but it was more about a reflection that was guided very strongly by Fran Kitagawa and Ray as well who are part of the you know the, the Echigo Sonari team I mean organising and you know creating this kind of triennale which is very powerful and happens every three years and it's very international they're very tight curated as well and so there's always these conversations about being directed you know and I think that 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 relationships being very influential and um, important because otherwise you would go there mm. and you'd have assumptions about place yeah. mm. Could I ask some really down to earth, sort of mundane I questions? I hope you're saying mundane things. I really appreciate the high flown artistry of all of this, and it's marvellous, and I've admired this project for a long time from a distance. But if I was doing a performance there, I'd say, where is back of house? Where can I store my stuff? Where can I put anything? If I'm running a reception there with people, where the hell do I put 
the boxes with the drinks and the plates There's and the panels. catering and the... There are, there are hidden panels. Andrew has developed ah, a series of hidden where? panels where? on the ground floor and also upstairs. Oh, okay. There's a big room. So, that's, so we're only that's looking deceptive. at one floor. I that's see the, there are stairs. That's the ground floor. So you actually have a, a small event kitchen. Right. Um, I see that. Storage and another storage space in underneath the stair. Yep. Which actually gives quite a good, good um, volume. Yes. In the end, something about this building, it's a very, very small building. Right, no, I can see that. 140 square metres. <laughs> With a very small budget. Well, this, this is good to know. So you've got that covered. Now, second question, if I may. Okay. That's not so food. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought most of the eating would be outside. Can, um, do, can you just tell me about, I, I understand about the Triennale, do other countries, apart from Japan, have permanent buildings in Echigon? I don't think they'd call them Italian house or anything like that. <laughs> but, um... No, no. I, I know it's that a very special relationship. was quite yeah. one-off. Mm. I mean, it was like a little shack. Yeah. And the artists used to go there and use it as a studio, right? Yeah. And of course, they can still use this one. Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm, but, but, but certain but sites were purchased for artists. Other countries haven't done a kind of a Venice and put their own buildings in Echigo. They haven't? They? No. No. I think to the credit of, of Fram that he, he hasn't sought to force that idea. He's not trying to do that. I think, he, I think a relationship develops between an Australian artist. Australian artists, I think, engage, have engaged with it quite well because there's a, a, a kind of enjoyment of working with communities and working with landscape and those kind of concerns. So there has been a, a relationship that's been formed over time, and this building has really come from that. So, so again, it's ground up, where it's connections with people that have really formed and developed that relationship. Yeah. Mm. And, and one thing you haven't mentioned, but I know it from my colleagues in Tokyo, is the, I, I think part of the movement that took place to get this to happen after the triple disaster um, was, was largely due to the enthusiasm of the cultural staff in the embassy, Absolutely. who, who Absolutely. really backed it, didn't yeah, they? And, and how, people together, like how did they get the funds? Yeah. Actually, um, it's been funded by a number of parties. So yeah. there's been the Australia-Japan Foundation. Of course. And the Australian Embassy in Tokyo, yeah. who, who were very involved in in, in driving it, but also uh, the phenomenal thing is Tokamachi City, which is a small local government, have funded half the building. Really? So they've you know, contributed over $200,000 to a, a building which is about Australian artists presenting work and spending time in this place. That's just an amazing generosity. It's, it's and also the Australian Council for the Arts for, um, and uh, the um, uh, um, um, Arts Victoria. So both Arts Victoria and Australia, Australia Council put in probably a total of about eighty thousand dollars to the project. What was the total budget? But that's not including the arts budget, I don't think. No, no. I think it's a, it's both, isn't it? Four hundred thousand. Yeah. Which is which is a pretty amazing. Um, uh, an amazingly small amount of money to create what has the presence of it being a, a significant institution in, in 11 months' time. Yeah. Well, 
Well, congratulations. I'll surrender the mic with somebody, somebody with a better voice. I think you were suggesting that the place maybe suggested the fall of the building, the, the triangle. I guess I'm quite convinced of that. Like it could have been another geometric shape, if you like. It could have been a dome, for example. Okay. Is that true, or is that... In other words, that this was a shape you like, let's be there. But it could have been, you know, if you've been doing work somewhere else. I, I, think, I think there's a, there's a, I mean, I'm attracted to a, a triangle. Um, I guess what I'm saying is you're attracted to a triangle and have you been in Jerusalem, let's do a triangle. But it's not, it's not, I, I guess, I've, I've never done a triangular building before. Right. But what, what I like about it is that it's a generic shape. Like it's as generic as a square, but Somehow, through through being triangular, it almost creates content. It... I agree with the idea of the triangle being a, a really pleasing shape. I just wondered, was the triangle suggested particularly by this place, or did you just have a desire to think... the triangle building and it's not particularly? I think... There's a reason why I want to do this. I'm very bored with the photographer here. Mm -hmm. probably sits outside. And it's a weird process that happened when I got there and that normally your architect photographer relationship is let's go and photograph the building. That's all they're interested in. Andrew's response to me was, let's not go to the building, let's go and drive on some sheds. And so we drove for a day through this extraordinary landscape. I mean, it's, it's 1,500 square kilometers of art and buildings and triangular buildings. There are triangles everywhere, primarily because of snow, right. ditching the snow. And the other amazing thing is, you go to Murray, and their logo is a yellow triangle, which is independent from, I think, Andrew's intention to place the buildings and plan, but everywhere you go, you are surrounded by these extraordinarily functional triangles. They don't make sense anywhere else in the world. You go to Melbourne and you see triangles on the facade. You go to Ethiopia and it's just this extraordinary form that makes so much sense in place. Andrew just took me on a tour of triangles. And I was shared up, shared up, shared up, shared up, shared. Each one was different. And then we eventually arrived at this extraordinary shape. It's right now. But it does work very well on the site in that it. It presents that 45 degree angle in this case to both road approaches. So it undermines that expectation of a solid form on both approaches. The other thing is, it was a deliberately quite pragmatic utilitarian structure. And then, but then the thing to take it beyond that was also a very pragmatic move, cut it in half on a diagonal. So it's, it's kind of working with those, those things. Just to very quickly explain the, so the original, original form, with a sort of frontal presentation to the courtyard, which I, I, I liked. But this is how it finally became. So, quite different. The reason being, when your form is like this, the majority of the snow falls down here on that part of the side. So when you're in a, in a, in a, in a place with heavy snowfall, you, 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 don't, you don't clear the snow by coming and driving a, a truck and collecting the snow and moving it somewhere else. You just the volume of snow in this valley is so immense that this is a, you know, a tiny fraction of that, so that all, all you simply do is push it onto the next site and it, it makes its way down the hill. So 
The issue with this is that this was the roof being over here, sending most of the snow here, where you needed to get it to that part up the top. Whereas with the revised scheme, it places the snow right there. So if the snow's cleared every two or three weeks for five months of the year, for hopefully 150 years, that, that is many, many times the cost of the building is the difference in, co in maintenance cost from that one decision. So that was a way where uh, suddenly it was, the building was able to be engaged with local pragmatic concerns, which I think do characterise the people uh, very easily, and also solve a, a pragmatic concern. I mean, a few other things about it. It still preserved the, the triangular approach on a corner, and... I think, I think and uh, there's an interesting question. I know, I know you both have answers here, but, uh, but yeah. to your point, sometimes I've looked at that building and thought, uh, it's actually too Japanese. It has too much reference from Japan to be done by an Australian architect. So my slight concern about, you know, you're talking about what, what you might interpret as being generic things or universal and not like or whatever, is it in fact maybe it has, it has actually borrowed too much from what both Brett and Andrew have seen. So I think there's an interesting point there which is, goes to the conversation we had about Brooks' work, about whether it is universal, just happens to be there a case of text that applies to people who live there, and is that all right? Or is it actually authentic to the, to the, the, the exchange between two different cultures? So I think, you know, mm. The question raises those sorts of issues about what is authenticity when you build a new building by an Australian architect in a rich, dense Japanese culture. We've got interesting sort of James, I think what does answer that question is that what Andrew has built and what Brooker put into that thing is actually made the most, I think possibly the most Australian type of building, which is a shed for art. And when you see it in the context, have you got a shed? I don't. Um, when you see it in the context of other sheds, I don't. I, I really, rarely can see the architecture. All I see is the shed that has an extraordinary artwork in it that may in other years have a tractor in it. And I think will work just as well with tractor in houses with artwork. So I do think culturally, you can see the Japanese architecture in that form, but I think when you're there, you're aware of its shedness in a very strange way. When you're having meals in this thing, Downstairs is extraordinary work of art. There's people hanging out at sites, people like my girlfriends coming around to visit. It's got a very shed quality to it, which I think for most Australians, when they go there, will feel very at home in that place. Well, I have to say, I, I wasn't. It's in my garden. It just depends on how far you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone from home is going to go.